0: Priorities. If I were to give this sermon a title, uh, that is what it would be: Priorities. Johann uh, Wolfgang von Goethe. That's the man on the screen right there, or at least an illustration of him. He was one of Germany's most famous poets, playwrights, and novelists. In one article that I had read, it was said that in terms of influence, Goethe's or Goethe's upon Germany. It's second only to Martin Luther's. Now, while most of his philosophical ideas are a bit skewed, he does have one quote that carries some truth. Goethe once said, and I quote, "...things which matter most must never be at the mercy of things which matter least." In other words, life values that are to be prioritized first should remain first, And not be trumped by other values. It's a concept that we understand as Christians. Right? We say that God, both knowing Him and exalting His name in everything that we do and say, certainly takes priority in our everyday lives. We say that everything else in this world comes second to God. We say these things, but do our lives reflect God as the first priority in our day-to-day existence? Pew Research Center, in their own words, is a nonpartisan fact tank that informs the public about the issues, attitudes, and trends shaping the world. They do this through public-driven opinion polling, demographic research, content analysis, and other data-driven social science research. And they just did a brand new study. It's brand new just a couple months ago on what Americans deem as the most important personal priorities. So this is how the study went. The adults were given nine specific priorities, all right? Each one of the adults in the survey, they received these same nine priorities. They were then asked to place those nine priorities, those nine given priorities, into one of four different categories. All right, and these categories were, as you can see on the screen, right? The first one, if it was one of the most important priorities in your life, you place that priority in that category. Category two was very important, but not the most important. Three was somewhat important, and then the last one was not important. If you thought the priority was not important to you, you placed it in that category. Now, these nine priorities, they range from anything like spending time with family to being successful in your career to the priority of practicing your religious faith. And this one in particular is what I want to dial in on as we look at the results of the study, the priority of practicing your religious faith. Now uh, let me just note that religion here includes all different types of faith, not just the wide umbrella of Christianity. And I thought that the results of this study were quite interesting. For example, spending time with family was clearly the breadwinner. Seventy-three percent of the surveyed people placed spending time with family in, in the most important priority category. So, out of all those that were interviewed, out of all. I believe it was 5,000 and some individuals, 73% of the surveyed place spending time with family in that first category, that green one up there. Now, what I really want to focus on is that last category, category four, which is where you place priorities if you thought they were not important in any way. Being physically active, only 3% of the voters placed this as not important at all. Only 3%. So that means that 97% say that being active holds some level of importance in their lives. So 97% placed being physically active in one of the first three categories. Only 3% placed it as not important. Being outdoors and experiencing nature was another priority that was to be ranked. Only 4% of the voters said that being outdoors had no priority in their lives. So that means 96% say that outdoors has at least some importance to them. Now here it is. Religion. 28% of the voters placed practicing your religious faith in the fourth category. Not important at all. 28%. This was tied as the highest percentage placed in the fourth category out of all the nine priorities. The priority of religion, and remember, the the wide umbrella of religion is included in this, not just narrowed down to true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but the practicing of religion as a whole is becoming less and less of a priority in our society. People would say, people would rather be outside or participate in music and writing activities than seek out the truth of God. People would rather be exercising than seek out the reason for their existence. People would rather be taking a stroll in the park on a nice summer's day than seek out a God who loves his created world so much so that he sent his son to die on the cross to redeem his fallen creation. This is the world we live in. These are the values and the priorities that society elevates, and as a result, these items are the pulls and pressures that we experience day in and day out. But as we will see tonight, the world has always been this way. Humanity has always rejected the value of God and instead put in his place selfish gain and pleasure. Tonight we consider a nation, or the nation, of Israel in a time of ensuing peril and destruction, a time in which God's chosen people prioritized personal knowledge, strength, and wealth over the understanding of God. And as a result, judgment was executed in the form of captivity to a foreign nation. So turn with me in your Bibles, or you can look on the screen, as we consider Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9. And our key verses, or our memorable verses, if you will, the, near the very end of the chapter, verses 23 and 24. I'll read them for you now. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Our theme for tonight tonight we evaluate a proper viewpoint of life's priorities. Now, if we look at Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, we can see a specific word that is repeated consistently throughout, and that word is boast. right, boast. Five times this word is used in these two verses. Now, when we think of boasting, or at least boasting in the Lord, perhaps Jeremiah 9 is not the passage of Scripture that comes to mind. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 speaks of this idea of boasting in God, and perhaps this occurrence in 1 Corinthians is more widely recognized Than the Jeremiah 9 occurrence. Listen to verses 30 and 31 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Did you take note to the words preceding this phrase? Right? Paul it's quoting a precise passage of Scripture when he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, right? Paul says, as it is written. As it is written. Paul is pulling this phrase, this concept from another portion of the Word of God. From where is he gleaning this truth? Well, Jeremiah chapter 9. But what is interesting about these two occurrences, while they are the same idea in truth, the context is much, much different, right? In 1 Corinthians... Paul is writing to a church that is not distinguished by wisdom, strength, and wealth. He's writing to a church that is not distinguished by these qualities. Listen to verses 30 and 31 again. However, listen to them with the full context of verses 26 and 29 added to them. It says, "...for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards." So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, the Corinthians were not characterized as being wise, as being powerful, or being of noble birth, all right? That can signify their standard, or their, their station in society, or their wealth, all right? The Corinthian believers were ordinary. They were weak according to the worldly standards. But Paul is encouraging the Corinthians that value is not found in what the world claims to be of worth. But rather, value is found in Christ and what he has done. And it is only by the working of God that man can be in favor with God. Therefore, all the boasting, all the honor is to the Lord who uses us for his glory in spite of our weaknesses. You see, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is a passage of encouragement. Jeremiah chapter 9, on the other hand, is a completely different story. While Paul speaks words of reassurance, Jeremiah speaks words of warning. Jeremiah is speaking the word of God, not to a people that lack worldly wisdom, might and wealth, but he is speaking to a people that are fully consumed by these priorities. The audience, which are the Israelites, are fully caught up in what the world deems as being valuable. And for that reason, Jeremiah, by the word of God, is charging the Israelites to abandon these priorities and chase after someone who is of far greater value and far greater worth. This passage is a solemn warning. This passage was to pierce the hearts of a people consumed with the priorities of the world. So, let us dive in and take a closer look at the warning that is found in these two verses. I believe the first thing that we can see in these two verses is that an individual is defined by the priorities in which they pursue, right? An individual is defined by the priorities in which they pursue, Look with me very closely at verse 23, again, of Jeremiah chapter 9. It says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Our priorities often define who we are as people. Isn't it interesting that the Scriptures do not say this, Thus says the Lord, Let not man boast in his wisdom. Let not man boast in his might. Let not man boast in his riches. No, but we get this doubling of attributes, if you will, right? Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. It's almost like a confirmation that possessing these values, wisdom, might, or riches, makes you the embodiment of that given value. Having great wisdom defines a normal man as a wise man. Having great strength defines a normal man as a mighty man. Having great wealth defines a normal man as a rich man. You see, when when priorities are pursued, the achievement and success that is obtained becomes our identity. We are looked at as clever if we pursue knowledge, right? We are seen as valiant if we chase after strength. We are characterized as wealthy if we spend our lives focused on gaining riches, it also means, when we'll get to it later, we are seen as godly if we spend our days pursuing the righteousness of our maker. You See, the pursuit of our priorities defines who we are, both in our own eyes, but also in the eyes of others. If I were to ask you who is one of the most brilliant and intelligent individuals to ever live, I think it is safe to say that many of us would consider Albert Einstein to be our answer. It's a good answer. Uh, If you just read a little bit about his life, it doesn't take long to see that his pursuit of knowledge and theories of science consumed his adult life. It became a top priority for him, and as a result, he became a world-renowned genius. Einstein was defined and is defined by the world as a brilliant man. Why? Because brilliance and knowledge were his priorities. You see, what we pursue and the success we find in those pursuits becomes our identity. It's what people see, and as a result, those priorities are contributed to our personhood. So my first point of application is this. What do others see as your values? Would you like to know what your true priorities are in life? Go ask those around you. What do people define you as? Perhaps we are so caught up in our jobs that we are defined as a workaholic. Perhaps we are so dedicated to participating in sports that we are only known as an athlete. Perhaps we are so dedicated to our studies that we are seen only as an intellectual. Are all these bad labels? Not necessarily, but I think we need to ask ourselves, are these our only labels? Have we placed these values in our lives so high that they are all that people see? And if those priorities are all that people see, perhaps there is no more room left for individuals to see Christ in us. Have we lost our identity in the eyes of others as children of God? What priorities are shaping your identity? Just keep that in the back of your mind as we move forward. The way in which others define you will reveal your priorities. Continuing along, we see God command his people to abandon their earthly values. All right. Jeremiah 9 verse 23 again, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches. The word of the Lord instructs the Israelites to shake loose from boasting in their worldly confidence. All right, the word boast here literally means to verbally show off, to speak of your knowledge, to speak of your strength, to speak of your riches in a way that proudly elevates you in the eyes of others. So when God says, let not the wise, mighty, or rich man boast in his wisdom, might, or riches, he is instructing the boaster to refrain from showing off or praising himself in his priorities. You see, Israel is is fully consumed in their earthly values. They, they not only prize their wisdom, might, and riches, but they value them so highly that they speak of their greatness as their confidence. And I just want to take a moment here and consider why this command, this warning is administered in the first place. right Why were the Israelites showing off and gloating over these life values? Well, I think we need to consider the occasion, the events that spark both the boasting and therefore the necessity of this warning that comes from God. Take a look with me at the verses that come right before our passage for this evening. I will beginning at verse 13 I will Begin reading at verse 13 of Jeremiah chapter 9, and we'll go all the way down through to verse 22. It starts this way, and the Lord says, because they, that is Israel, have forsaken my law that I have set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have, done, and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them, therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women to come. Send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion, how we are ruined." We are utterly shamed because we have left the land, because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters a lament, and each to a neighbor a dirge. For death has come up into our windows, it has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak, thus declares the Lord, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. That is some very graphic imagery of the judgment that is to come upon the Israelites. The Babylonians were coming, and the destruction and exile that Judah was to experience was due to their disobedience and their abandonment of God. Jeremiah was prophesying to a sin-stricken and consumed nation, a nation that no longer placed their confidence in God, but placed their confidence in the worldly priorities that they had set up for themselves. They trusted their own wits, their own strength, and their own riches more than they relied on the true and living God who was orchestrating the very judgment they were to face. So, when Jeremiah prophesies that the nation is to fall, it makes sense that the Israelites turned to their new priorities for deliverance. Surely they trusted that their own national wit and knowledge could save them from such invasion. Surely they trusted that their own military strength could deliver them from the Chaldeans. Surely they they trusted that their riches provided some level of assurance to buy salvation. But the Israelites missed it. Their priorities were hindering them from seeing the reality that they needed to turn to the one true deliverer. Therefore, God commands the Israelites to reject these ill-placed confidences that were blinding them from seeing the true source of salvation. Which leads us to our next point of application, and that is this. Our priorities can often blind us from believing there is a need for God. Our priorities can often blind us from believing there is a need for God. You see, when other aspects of our life take precedence and God is placed on the back burner, our view of the importance of God will naturally diminish we can say to ourselves, yes, God is still important to me, but if we have placed the pursuit of God as a chore that we will get to later, how important is he really? We start to believe that other values need to take precedence over God. For example, think of the life of King Solomon. Right, He starts his reign off great. He was faithful to God and ruled by applying his God-given wisdom. Yet, as we know, Solomon's priorities started to change. He became consumed by the influence of his wives. And then in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, we get this word, of the, word from God. It says, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. When Solomon's wives and the gods of his wives became a priority, God was pushed to the side. Solomon started to believe that these worldly priorities had more value than God, and as a result, what did the scripture say? His heart was no longer wholly true to the Lord his God. See, if we are not careful, secondary values can take the place of God, and as a result, God no longer becomes a necessity what dangerous water we have entered, if that becomes a reality in our lives, if that thought becomes something that we believe in. So beware of the blinding power of earthly values. For if we are not careful to keep God first, we very quickly can be prone to dismissing our need for him altogether. Next point of application is this. Our speech reveals our hearts. Our speech reveals our hearts. As we looked at briefly, the word boast In these two verses carries a a verbal meaning. To boast means to speak of one's greatness, of one's accomplishments. So I ask you to consider what is the makeup of your everyday speech? What is it that you find the most pleasure in sharing with others? Do you find the most delight in showing off your accomplishments or your accolades? This is not to say that speaking of hobbies and things of which you are proud is always a bad thing. We need to be careful and we need to be aware that those items do not consume our lives. And we forget the goodness of the one who has given us those items in the first place. May we take notice to our speech. For our speech oftentimes emulates what matters most in our hearts. So let us pray consistently for the Holy Spirit to work in us. So that the character and nature of our good God is ever on our lips. For if God is a priority in our lives... It is he that will be a priority on our speech, in our speech, which leads us into the second part of our lesson this evening, analyzing godly priorities and values. Instead of pursuing earthly priorities, God's people are to pursue the character and the nature of God. Look with me at verse 24 of Jeremiah 23 and 24, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. God tells his people that if they are to glory or gloat in anything, it should be in the character of God. Right? All these other priorities that you have set up are nothing compared to knowing and treasuring me. What has value and what should be of utmost importance to you is that you are my people who know me and take confidence in my character. That is what has lasting worth and undeniable assurance. God is the only appropriate ground on which one can boast. Now, boasting is uh, it's often associated with sin. Right? Earlier we heard that the word for boast in these verses means to show off. And that definition relays a sense of pride, which we know, of course, is denounced in Scripture. But you see, to boast in knowing God is not for the purpose of exalting oneself or ourselves. It's not so that you can say, I know more of the Scripture than you. To boast in the understanding of God is not so that I can say I have have a deeper and richer relationship with God than you do. It's not so that I can win all of the Bible trivia games, right? It's more than that. Rather, to boast in God can be understood as boasting of God, right? When we make God a priority in our lives, when we dedicate our lives to understanding who he is through his word and his outworkings, when we value him as the most important aspect of our existence, then we become more knowledgeable about who he is. And as a result, we are more prepared to boast of his goodness, to praise his character, to bring attention to his name, and to extol his greatness. When we are more knowledgeable about the character and nature of God, we are more prepared and more responsible to show off the character of God to others. Are we not all great at doing that? Right? Certainly we are all quick to show off God to our society. Right? It comes naturally because we are Christians. We know the answer to all those questions is no, right? Oh, how hard it really is to do that. How hard it is to boast of God and not ourselves. Uh, John MacArthur, he believes that the most hated Christian doctrine is the doctrine of total depravity. People do not want to believe that they are sinful. Rather, the world teaches us that there is good in everyone. You see, our sinfulness, our pride, wants us to see ourselves as good people. I would submit to you that that Idea, it trickles down into why we can't get enough of ourselves. We love talking. We love boasting in what we have accomplished and what we can do and what we have worked so hard to bring to completion. But you see, even in the boasting of ourselves, we miss the one who is behind all the success and accomplishments that we experience. It is within our nature to leave God out of all aspects of our lives. Before we knew Christ, we were rebels. We wanted nothing to do with God. So to show off God is to go against the grain of our human depravity. That is why boasting of God is so, so difficult. It's difficult, yes. But you see, it is so important to let the Holy Spirit work in our lives. We need to pray for transformation so that by the grace of God, we can be faithful in boasting of God. For when we boast in God... It actually has the opposite effect than when we boast in ourselves. And why is that? It's because when we extol his greatness, where does the glory go? It goes to God. On the contrary, when we extol earthly wisdom, might, and riches, where does the glory go? It goes to us. It is God that needs to be exalted and not us. And why is that? Well, because God is worthy. We are not worthy. God is worthy of boasting. He is worthy of our praise. And Why is he so worthy? Well, look at the next phrase within our verse. All right, it says, starting at verse 24, but let not him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. God's people are to experience and ponder the faithful loyalty, the sound judgment, and the uprightness of his law. We could certainly take the, the remainder of our time together to break down each one of these three characteristics, but I think it would be helpful to look at the large picture of what these descriptions are portraying of the character of God. What this phrase is saying is that God is a holy God. Because he is God and because he is holy, God is worthy of being the recipient of our boasting. I love the first phrase there. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Israel, boast in me because I am your God. Someone was frightening. God is saying that he is worthy of exaltation because he is the divine ruler over this world. This declaration, while frightening, is followed with an assurance that God is not tyrannical, right? He is a holy and good God, exercising steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. What a powerful statement about the nature of God. God is telling his people, look at my character Look at who I am, look how I have been faithful in the past, how I have practiced steadfast love, justice, and righteousness, not only to you, but to the entire earth. I am Yahweh, and when you come to recognize my goodness and holiness, you will see that I alone am worthy of praise. God is worthy of exaltation because he is God. May we be remiss from withholding from him what is rightly his. May we be quick to make him the first priority in our lives. Why? Because he is worthy. And as this verse wraps up, we come to our last phrase. Here we see that God takes pleasure in the exercising of his character. The last phrase there. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. It brings God favor to see the outworking of his holy character. God is pleased to see faithful loyalty, sound judgment, and uprightness carried out. Brings him pleasure to bestow his nature upon his people. And the same goes with our character. When we emulate the character of God in our own lives, he is pleased. We could spend a a whole lesson looking at the verses that follow. For verses 25 and 26 speak uh, to the outworking of righteousness in God's people. But for the sake of time, I would just like to take a quick peek and just read it. And it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Israel has fallen victim to pharisaical nature, right? They have the appearance of righteousness on the outside, but on the inside they are corrupt. They may have the covenant symbol of circumcision, but they are uncircumcised in their hearts, they have not carried out the intended will and nature that God encourages through his law. God delights in true, holy living. It should be our priority to study the nature of God and to follow his commands so that we can live according to his will. God is pleased to see his children practicing righteousness. So, conclusion. I would like to take a moment to consider Israel's response to this warning. God warned Israel to abandon their misplaced values and confidences and put God first in their lives as their first priority. How did they do? I think first we need to understand, the first thing we need to understand is, uh, is, is when Jeremiah is ministering, right? What, what is the, the timeline? What is the historical context of his prophecy Well, Pastor walked through the ministry of Jeremiah this morning, where he falls in the line of Israelite history, and uh, I think it would be helpful just to take another quick look at where Jeremiah falls in in the history of Israel, and the scriptures tell us precisely when Jeremiah ministered, right? In the very first chapter, the very first uh, verses of Jeremiah chapter 1 say, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. So Jeremiah's ministry begins with King Josiah. pastor just spoke on King Josiah last Sunday morning. Today, pastor spoke about King Jehoiakim, who was Josiah's second son that sat on the throne. We know that Jeremiah continues his ministry until after the downfall of the nation of Judah, right? Zedekiah is the last king of Judah, and Jeremiah is still prophesying during his time, even up and through the fall of Jerusalem. So that's the time period. It's the end of the kings, from Josiah through the final deportation of Judah to Babylon. So back to the question, how did Israel respond to this warning? Well, Pastor walked us through a couple of accounts where we get the nation's response to the prophet Jeremiah. But I want to take a look at Zedekiah, the final king of Judah. How does he respond? And what is the outcome of that response? Look with me at the end of Second Chronicles. This is the last chapter, verse chapter thirty-six, verses eleven through seventeen. It says, "Zedekiah was twenty-one years old when he began to reign. He reigned eleven years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord." He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers and of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of Israel. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord... The God of their fathers sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against the people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. Israel's response, they never repented. Rather, Israel mocked, they derided, they treated God's servants and God's word as filth. Even though God had compassion and grace in his judgment, which was what we saw this morning, Israel still turned their backs on the one who was to be their value and their priority. What was the result? Well, everything that we read in Jeremiah chapter 9 came to pass. Judgment and exile were the wages for Israel's unfaithfulness. In the beginning of our time together tonight, I I said that we, America, as a nation, have misplaced our values and our priorities. We are not much different than Israel. We believe that the acquiring of knowledge, the building up of strength, and the accumulation of riches are what matter most. God means very little to our nation anymore. God is a good and faithful God. And in his goodness and faithfulness, he is a God who executes justice. Israel was judged for their wrongdoing. Judgment is coming. As pastor said this morning, when God carries out his judgment, he carries it out swiftly. Judgment is coming. May we pray for our nation We are on a dark road. We have misplaced the value of God, and as a result, God has given our society up into the lusts of our hearts and our dishonorable passions. There is punishment for disobedience. May we pray that our country will turn back to God. May we pray that our nation will reverse the priorities that we have made. God needs to be at the center, and we must pray to that end. But how can we pray to that end if it is a hypocritical prayer? If we want to see revival in our nation, it needs to start in our own hearts. We are so easily pulled in every direction in which the world says needs to be a priority. So I encourage you to reevaluate what has taken precedence in your life. What are the items that you need to diminish or set aside so that God can be priority number one? What activities are keeping you from coming to church? What priorities come before teaching your children the truths of God's word on a constant and regular basis? At the beginning of our time together, I quoted Gute. And let me quote his saying one more time. He said, Things which matter most must never be at the mercy of things which matter least. It is God who matters most. Is your pursuit of knowing him currently at the mercy of things which matter least? If so, cast them aside. This is hard to do. I under I understand that our society is richly blessed with provision and pleasure. Our society values spare time, but if we are not careful, all we do with that time is fill it with misplaced priorities. If we are not careful, the rich comforts we receive from God, we can start to skew can start to skew our commitment to God. Christ says, right, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because our riches blind us from our need for God. The more you have, the harder it is to give those things up. Nevertheless, we must cast off these non-essential priorities and replace them with God. Why? Well, as our verse says, for he is worthy. He is God. He is the only one who can satisfy and the only one who can save. And we pray to God that he would help us place our priorities into a proper perspective. Let's close with prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the conviction of it. We pray that we will follow what it says. Pray as we consider our priorities in our lives that we would truly consider if you are first. And if you are not, I pray that... We will cast the priorities aside that, that don't matter. And that doesn't mean to, to become a monk or to, to abandon society, but to find the importance of you above society. I just pray that our nation will turn back to you, that we will repent. I pray that our nation as a whole will seek to put you first, put you at the center of what values most, what is most worthwhile. I pray that you will work in our hearts to to boast in you, and boast in you alone, not boast in what we say we have done for ourselves, because ultimately it's you who has worked uh, the goodness that we see in our lives. I just pray for your working in our lives, and I pray for our time together at the corn roast. I pray that it will be sweet. I pray that it will be encouraging, and I pray that through everything that is said and done, your name will will be brought glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, and we are dismissed.